This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Our guest today is Tyler Foley. He started acting in film and television when he was six years old. He is passionate about helping others confidently take the stage and have impact on their audiences. And I'm Mary Elkins. Tyler has performed on many TV series and has been a safety consultant, instructor, and keynote presenter for 10 years and is the author of the book, The Power to Speak Naked, and the managing director of Total Buy-In. Welcome, Tyler. Oh, Mary, Kathy, it is an absolute joy to be here. I I can't tell you how excited I am to be chatting with you ladies today. (laughs) And we're excited to have you too. You started out acting at such a young age. How did you go from doing that to starting a company like Total Buy-In, a business helping people cope with being on stage? Well, so the total buy-in itself has actually had a really weird evolution and is circuitous to my getting on stage early. Um, I started in film and television because my father actually passed away uh, from a motor vehicle accident when I was six years old. And mm-hmm. my mom was looking for kind of a, an emotional outlet for me. I didn't really outwardly grieve my father's passing for probably six years, but I was also young and I don't know that that was abnormal, but my mom was definitely concerned and, and thought that I should have an emotional outlet. And I had shown a, a shine for the stage in Christmas pageants and plays and and my uncle worked very close to uh downtown calgary and and theater calgary and so i was uh blessed to be able to take the stage at an early age and then when you do start a professional career at six years old uh a 20-year career (laughs) brings you to 25 yeah. So, so you get to retire at that point. Isn't that what everybody does at the, the 20 year mark of their career? And so I, I had this blessing of, of basically having a, a, a second opportunity to get into another career and still have a 20 year career under my belt. And so I went back to school. I got an engineering discipline, started uh, a mapping company with a, a mentor of mine. That business unfortunately folded um, a couple of bad decisions and my business partner um, actually passed away at a very early age. Um, and so the various circumstances led to InView Solutions dissolving and, and not being there anymore. And so I had all of this uh, training. I now started a business. I had this engineering discipline, but I also had this 20-year career of uh, film and television and stage. 
And a friend of mine said, you know, you'd actually make a really good safety officer. And I went, that sound, I've never even heard about that. Tell me more. And so he said, you know, you've got this training because you needed to have a safety program for your company. And I said, yes. And he said, well, if you take these extra two courses, you can actually get a designation called the National Construction Safety Officer. And I went, that sounds interesting. Tell me more. And so he paid for my courses and I ended up becoming a safety officer for his electrical company. And while I was doing the electrical company, I was starting to learn more about safety and, and, and safety processes and putting together safety management systems. And that kind of took me into a career. So I started total buy-in as a safety consultant, but I rapidly realized that there were so many other areas that I was dealing with and safety really wasn't it. What it boiled down to was communication that a lot of what I was doing was uh, self-help work for businesses. So I would approach a business from the perspective of personal development. You know, what are your core values? What, uh, what are your goals? What are your ambitions? And we would, I would look at that company as a, as a person and, that person just happened to be headed by, uh, you know, a, either a group of people or a, a, a CEO or an executive board. And then we would start to, to play with, well, what does this mean to you? And I, I kept finding that a lot of these executives are in these high ranking positions, but have a really hard time, even though they're in a leadership role, communicating what they want out of their labor force and their vision and their, their goals for the company. And so they could say, well, I want this, but I don't know how safety integrates. And I was like, well, your corporate culture is your safety culture. That problem is, is you're trying to silo it right now and make it this one thing. And the reality is, is it's, it's all part of the, the overall process. And so through the course of the next couple of years, I, I found myself doing more safety training and more safety coaching with uh, these executives and the C-suite to the point where I stopped talking about safety. Safety just became irrelevant and we just started talking about talking. And next thing I knew, I had a best-selling book and I had courses on training people on how to public speak and it came all the way full circle back to the performance. So I don't really know at what point it happened, but it, it was just this evolution. And so now Total Buy-In does its own thing on its side and does the safety consulting and we have the SeanTylerFoley.com and Power to Speak Naked series and seminars. And and it's just a whole big conglomerate. And I, I sit here as a, a pretty figurehead. I guess that happened because you could say yes as you went along to everything, right? Say yeah. yes to this and say yes to this. And it kind of all came to you that way. Amazing. Well, and, and it's a, yeah, it's a lesson that I learned in theater. Again, everything I, I do comes back to the theater and uh, and lessons learned there and, and so i'm i again i'm grateful for the 20-year career that i could walk away from at 25. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's like improv you always say yes right you always mm-hmm. say yeah so yeah. and in fact it's a thing that i carry through with my team now we do a lot of yes and work i'm not allowed to say no to any other ideas i have to find out what the positive in that idea is and then move from it and everybody does that when we do it yeah Tell us what happened to you at the age of 17 and how that impacted your life. Uh, yes, uh, 17, I New Year's Day, I woke up and the left side of my body didn't work. 
And uh, to this day, we're not really sure why. I know that it was a medical incident, um, it, whether it was a palsy or a mini stroke or a stroke. I've had many, many, many pictures of my brain taken. I still keep actually one on my phone um, because it's just cool to be able to look at my brain. It's proof <laughs> that I have one. It's proof of its existence. <laughs> and um, But they, they can't say what happened. But what we do know is I went to sleep New Year's Eve 1996 and I was fine. I woke up New Year's Day, 1997, and the left side of my body didn't work. My face uh, was in full paralysis. Um, it drooped just viciously. Um, I couldn't feel anything hemispherically on the left side, and it was really hard to have uh, motor control and motor function of my left leg and my left arm. I could move it, and it would stay in position, but I couldn't feel anything with it, and the commands that I would give from my brain to my limbs didn't work the way that I wanted them to. Mm. And that was a, a year, a really good, solid year of uh, rehab and, um, and Western medicine, Eastern medicine, just trying to get function back. And it was, uh, at the time quite devastating. I remember waking up that New Year's Day and not being able to brush my teeth. So oh. I, I was, I remember staring in the mirror and trying to figure out like it just, things just weren't connecting. And I was, I was brushing my teeth and the toothpaste was dribbling out the side and I couldn't stop it from happening. And I didn't understand why. And finally my mom looked at me and she said, Tyler, something's wrong. Like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And, uh, and we ended up going to the hospital. And like I said, I, I, I was prodded and poked for a good two solid weeks and they couldn't really figure out um, what, what had caused it or why. Uh, best theory is that I did sleep kind of awkwardly that night before. I'd gotten in quite late, probably four in the morning because it's New Year's and I was a teenager. So it was fun to party. And, um, and I had I'd slept odd and what they figure is I, I had blocked a nerve in my neck, but I had also blocked the main vein coming back down. So the artery would be traveling in and the vein would be off. And because the nerve was pinched, I wasn't relaying the message to my brain to move. And because the vein was pinched, it was building up pressure in my brain and that likely caused uh, stroke-like symptoms and oh, paralyzed, paralyzed how did, the face. How did that impact the rest of your life? Uh, well, luckily, it gave me great um, strength and understanding of how precious life can be. I've had many, obviously, reminders of that from my father passing to this, that uh, life can change in an instant. And so, uh, frankly, it was a, a really good lesson for me. I'd also become remarkably complacent at 17. At that point, I'd been acting for 11 years. So I, I kind of was cock of the walk at that point, And I thought I was on top of the world. And and the king of all performance. And um, that was humbling when it was taken away. Because I'd phone in um, performances at that point. Like, I didn't really have to try. Especially when you're 17 and you already have a resume 15, 20 credits long. You're, you're more likely to be seen by casting directors. You're more likely to be cast in shows just because mm -hmm. you have a trust factor built up with production at that point. And... Um, Hey, so I, I wouldn't really try hard. But after that, 
I definitely had a fire in my belly, uh, especially when it was initially taken away. Like I had to drop out of, I was in a musical. I was in a performance of, um, uh, oh, it wasn't Damn Yankees. I can't remember what we were doing that year, but I had to drop out of the show. Um, I, and I, you know, I, I obviously couldn't audition for new stuff uh, unless it was a very, very specialized role. Uh, I wasn't going out for it. So it gave me uh, humility. It gave me uh, a hunger. It sparked my want and my desire again. And, and I didn't ever again take for granted the position that I was in. It also allowed me the opportunity to know when it was time to step away and retire from the business. Because fast forward, what would be eight years later, I'm 25, I remember getting a call from my agents at the time. Uh, the main film hub for Canada, it was Vancouver, still is. And I was living in a small community in the interior called Penticton. And the, it's about a three and a half, four hour commute. And I remember getting a call from my agent and I had just done an audition. And I was at a community called Hope, which is like, just before you get into the mountains, just before you get out of cell service. And she phones, she's like, they want to see you for a callback. And I'm like, when? And she's like, right now. And I was like, I'm like two hours away from the studio. Like, I don't want to turn around. And as soon as I had that thought, I knew at, in that moment that it was time to step away from it and, and mm -hmm. take a break. Because mm -hmm. um, if I didn't find the love for it again the universe would figure out a way to remind me of how much i needed it and so i i chose that time mm -hmm. great can you tell Answer. us where does stage fright come from and how do you coach others to get over it oh well that's real easy so uh stage fright is just simply a fear of judgment so a lot of people confuse stage fright and a fear of public speaking stage fright is a real thing Fear of public speaking is a falsehood and it's a story that people tell themselves. And I already know that there are people that are listening. There are some late bloomers there who are like, no, 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 oh, no, no. I am part of the 77% of uh, North America who identifies as having a fear of public speaking. <laughs> and to that, I would ask, when was the last time you were at uh, a restaurant? And I recognize that, you know, we've had a weird couple of years and maybe the last time you were at a restaurant was two years ago. But if you were able to, at any point in your life, go to a restaurant, look your wait staff in the eye, order food, and have that delivered to your table, you were speaking in public. Hmm. And if you didn't know your wait staff, you were speaking to a stranger in public. And if you got your food, you asked for what you wanted and received it. So this notion that we're afraid of speaking in public, we're afraid of speaking in front of strangers, and we're afraid to ask what we want, ask for what we want, all of those are ridiculous for anybody who has ever gone to a restaurant and received food because you are not afraid of public speaking. What you are afraid of is public judgment. So you weren't worried when you ordered food from your wait staff whether they were judging you which is really funny because as somebody who has worked in the service industry, I assure you, we are very judgy when we're taking your order. We're like, I would not have ordered those chicken and waffles, but I will give this on to the chef. And 
but we're, <laughs> we don't care. You don't care that, you know, you wanted what you wanted and that's what you wanted. You've looked through the menu and you chose. The problem comes when we take a stage and we're worried about how we're going to be perceived. Mm -hmm. So whether that's me doing a performance of somebody else's written work and I'm using somebody else's words, or as I get to now and I get to say my own words, my own way, the stage fright is real, and but the, the base fright and what is actually causing that is that fear of judgment, the fear of public ridicule, that my words will not matter, they won't be understood, they won't be heard, they'll be miscommunicated, um, that they won't be liked, really, ultimately, that people won't like what I'm doing or what I'm presenting. And that's what stage fright actually is. It's that fear of judgment from the public, which is totally backwards as well. Because again, I would challenge all of the late bloomers out there and any, anyone who is listening to this podcast, think of the last time you went to any performance, uh, whether that was in a boardroom or in an auditorium, in a theater, uh, wherever you happen to be. Did you sit down in that seat prior to a speaker going up or, or a performance or a play or, or a movie? And did you sit down in the seat and go, well, I hope this sucks. I really hope <laughs> that they forget everything that they're talking about. And this is of absolutely no value to me. I really hope this bombs. <laughs> no, <laughs> nobody thinks that. Ever. The opposite is true. When we go into anything, if I've bought a ticket, particularly, if this is an event that I have paid for, I am certainly invested and I want the best out of it. At the absolute worst, at the absolute worst end of the spectrum, you have an audience member who is passively indifferent to the message that you're getting. And that usually is in a boardroom scenario where it's a scheduled meeting and you're presenting some kind of statistic or numbers because your boss has told you to and everybody else has to listen. And they're probably more concerned with what's happening on their device than what's happening in the company. So mm -hmm. you, you may have to overcome somebody who is passively indifferent to the information that you're getting, but that's the worst case scenario. Nobody is actively against you. In fact, the majority of people are rooting for you, probably because it means that they don't have to do it. <laughs> so people yeah. are on your True. side. And that's how you can overcome stage fright really quickly is rapidly understanding that you're not actually afraid of public speaking, you're afraid of public judgment. And then you need to understand that the judgment is not actually there. It's made up in your head. So if you understand that the audience is on your side, now you don't have to be worried about the public ridicule and suddenly you don't have to be worried about the stage fright. Great. Are those the uh, insider tips that you tell speakers that they need to know? Those are part of the insider tips. That, that one in particular is one of the five that I do like to provide to people free of charge as the method that is a free download available to anybody. And it is, it, it's, the, it's the basis of all the work that I do. If people can't get through that, I can't help them. Um, and what are the other and, four? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> I'll give you, <laughs> oh, I'll give you is, one is other too long? one. <laughs> no, no, it's not that it's too long, but then why would anybody need to go to my website and check oh, it out? Oh, because uh, you're interesting. Yeah, yeah that's, this is true. But one of the other um, things that we discuss in the method, I'll give you two bonus ones. There are times where you do need to memorize things. 
right? Kathy, you understand this. Yes. Somebody, your agent sends you aside, you need to do an audition. Or uh, maybe you need to come across more polished when you're introducing a speaker and they have a very set way that they want to be introduced and you as an MC now need to do it. So there are times where you need to memorize things. I am not a big proponent of memorizing talks. So I want to get that out of the way. It's, it's counter to what most of my teaching is. In fact, I would say that memorizing talks is a waste of uh, a valuable, precious time and resources when it comes to preparing for a talk. We should be memorizing, um, taking time knowing what your bullet points and the journey you want to take your audience on, but not memorizing word for word for word what your talk is. But it is important to memorize the beginning of a talk. It is important to memorize the end of a talk, usually those last two or three sentences, and you want to make sure that those are down and those are cold. And if for example, somebody like me or Kathy gets presented with an opportunity to speak somebody else's words and we need to say them verbatim. Uh, the tip that we talk about, and I learned it when I was six years old. Do you remember those old recorders yeah. in elementary yeah. school? And they, had the, they were beige and they had the big red record button. You put a little yeah. tape cassette in. Uh -huh. When I first started acting, I couldn't read. I mean, I was uh -huh. learning to read. You were in six grade years one, old. But I couldn't read. So what my teacher would do is she would... Um, record all of my lines for me on the tape recorder and then I would play them back. She loaned me the tape recorder from the school, property of Spitzy Elementary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mm -hmm. would, you know, know that I had to return that at the end of the year. But I would we would just we go over them and play them over and over again. And now everybody has one of these. Cell phone. And whether cell phone. you're an a cell phone. That's right. Not everybody is visual right now. Um, <laughs> so for those listening at home, I am waving my cell phone around at Mary and Kathy. And on the cell phone, regardless of whether you're an Apple or an Android, uh, they have the voice recorders. So what I do is I record anything that I need to memorize onto the phone. And then I play it everywhere that I go. If I'm sitting in traffic, instead of listening to news radio, I'm listening to whatever lines I need to memorize. If I'm having a shower, <laughs> I'm listening to my phone. I've got the volume cranked up. And it's amazing because if you can operate a vehicle or shampoo your hair and be distracted doing everyday mundane tasks and still know those words, those words are now ingrained into you. So that's one of the, the big tips that I give everybody. When you do need to memorize things, use the power of the technology that you have, use your phone, record that, and then just play it back on loop. So until it becomes ingrained in your everyday life, cooking in the kitchen, play it off the phone, driving in traffic, play it on the phone. Mm -hmm. I know some people were skeptical of the shower, but I promise you, you do it, it works. <laughs> I think it's great because you're getting submerged in water at the same time. So it's kind of, <laughs> yeah, Hopefully it's, it's, a reset. it's a reset. If you really want to challenge yourself, do it in a cold shower. So that's oh. usually when, when I, when I want to know if I know lines, I will do them uh, Italian style. So fast paced, no breaks. And uh, I'll run Italians in the tub. So I'll put the, the playback on uh, triple speed and, throw on the cold water and if i can go blah 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 blah, blah while i'm being lambasted by freezing cold water at speed then i know that i know those lines <laughs> fabulous and you said in print that one of the safest jobs you ever had involved jumping out of windows what <laughs> what's that yeah what what true story so as a safety professional i have um 
had the pleasure of analyzing hundreds and hundreds of safety systems. And I have, because of my early vocation as an actor and performer, had the pleasure of having multiple, multiple, multiple different hats and, and jobs. And the, the safest one, no word of a lie, was when I got to do stunts in Vancouver. And I, I'll never forget the one job that I had. It was a six-story high fall into boxes. And the amount of planning that went into that, the amount of um, engineering and thought and training, it was literally the safest job that I had because my job lasted three and a half seconds and had over eight weeks of planning, uh, six weeks of training, um, three days of setup for three seconds wow. of film work. And I nailed it, so I only had to do the one take. Good for me. Good, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I would not it have must have been terrifying. Actually, it was remarkably freeing. Oh. Um, the, the scarier ones are like the two-story, three-story because you don't have time to blink. That one was, uh, I'll never forget it. You know, they called action. Stunt coordinator uh, was down on the ground. I had my spotter behind me, you know, three, two, one, go. And uh, you, you just have to decide in the moment that that's what you're gonna do, that you're, you're ready to go. And I had, I had prepped that fall so much. We had done a couple of test balls from lower heights. I'd worked the trampoline probably, I don't know, three weeks, four weeks, getting the timing right. Uh, we'd done the test, so I knew how, I mean, you just know gravity pulls you. It doesn't matter what the object is. You're going to fall this amount of time. It's going to take you to do those stories. I mean, it, it's like, I think it's like a second and a half uh, as far as actual timing goes. So one 1,000 and, and you roll. Um, so it takes no time, but in the moment, when you actually let gravity take hold of you, because you don't want to kick off when you do that. That's the other thing. When you're doing these high falls, you want gravity to grab you. So you just kind of lean forward and you trust the process. In that moment, it's so freeing because everything slows down. Like it's, it's you know, matrix time at that point. You just wow. fall into it. And, and so the, it, the world just kind of washes away and all you are is focused in on your mark and it stays far, far away for a really, really long time. And then all of a sudden, the boxes just grow. And they go, whoop. And you're all, all of a sudden, you're down at the bottom and you, you do your roll. And it's, it's honestly um, one of the greatest things I've ever done in my life, but definitely the safest. I mean, I've had jobs that wouldn't sound too terribly bad. You know, I've, I've built houses and and i've worked in art galleries and all of those involved things that would take off your hand if you did them wrong and poor supervision at that i was kind of left on my own devices where in this environment you know you have 80 people around whose entire jobs are dedicated to making sure that you walk away without a scratch like not even that you just kind of walk away okay that you walk away and you are perfectly fine because if they don't then there's there's issues down the road with insurance. So they yeah. want to make sure that that thing goes according to plan because it's bad PR when stunt, when, you know, something goes wrong on a film set. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no definitely kidding. the safest job I ever had. <laughs>
Gee. Well, when people are learning to be public speakers and they think they can't tell a compelling story because their own life isn't very exciting, what do you tell them? And also talk about what the power of story is. Oh, so um, first of all, everybody has a story. And uh, I will get to the power of story in a second, but everybody does have a story. And anybody who thinks, oh, my life isn't interesting or I don't have a story, I want them to, to play along really quickly. And we've got, and I want you to just uh, do some quick mental math and make some notes. So what I want you to do is I want you to take your age, however old you are, wherever you are, wherever you're listening, take your age and divide it by five. And I want to go back to like grade school math. So like your third grade math where you still had remainders, right? You, you, round, you, you divided to the even and then you had the remainder. I want you to take the remainder and tack it on to the beginning time period. So for me, 42 years old, if I divide by five, that gives me eight and a remainder of two. So five groups of eight and a remainder of two. I'm going to take that two. I'm going to tack it on to the beginning of my life. And so my first time period, my first epoch is from zero to 10. And then my next time period is 11 to 18 and then so forth and so on until I've reached my five time periods, zero to 42. And then what I want you to do is I want you to look at that first time period. Zero For me, zero to 10. For everyone else, it'll probably be somewhere from five to nine because that's just kind of what happens when you start tacking those on or, you know, maybe 12, 13. Um, we've, we're going to divide by five. You're going to get your, your first little bit of time period, maybe up to 20. And I want you to look at that time period and say, what is the most, what is the most memorable thing that happened in that time to me? What do I remember most about that time? Something will stand out. It doesn't have to be tragic. It could be something incredibly joyful. You know, for me, um, I, have a, I do actually have a lot of memories. I remember uh, at six years old, my two most vivid memories are the first time I ever got a standing ovation. <laughs> that is the most joyous sound that I've ever heard in my entire life. And it has compelled me for the rest of my life. And I also remember the sound that my mother made when she answered the door and the police officer and our local physician told her that my father had passed away. <gasps> and that sound has haunted me my entire life both of those happened at six years old wow so those are my two most compelling memories that i have from six and then if i look at the next time period i say well from uh 11 to 17 or 18 the most memorable things that have happened to me we've already discussed you know uh -huh. i i woke up and my face didn't work that was pretty memorable but i also remember the first um time I, I was ever really acknowledged uh, for um, scholastic effort. I actually won an award for being the top student of my elementary school. So those are two very profound memories that I have for me. And everybody can do this. So just divide your life by five and ask yourself, what memory stands out in this time period for me? And write it down. And then write, why is that? Why does it stand out? Why does it have meaning to you? Because at first you need to understand what the meaning to you is before you can start explaining that meaning to other people. For me, when I look at that time period when I was six years old, 
the meaning of the sound of hearing a standing ovation was a thing of pride, was a thing of exhilaration. It was a thing of joy and it became an addiction. I can't mm -hmm. get away from a stage now because it's all I want to do. I, I live for the applause. I think it's a song, like, right? That's a song from, mm -hmm. I think, 42nd Street. Right? Yeah. I yeah. live for applause. And, and it's, 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 it's just such a, a motivating factor for me that I will never get over it. And conversely, that sound that my mother made, God, I never want to hear that ever again in my life. And I don't want to be the cause of that sound ever to my mother, to my wife, to my daughter. Um, so I have to make sure that I'm not the reason that a police officer comes to the door and gives a knock. And that has guided a lot of the decisions that I've made in my life and maybe tempered my risk tolerance a little. Mm -hmm. And so that why that's when we when we look into those, why is this significant? It's answering that question of why is this important to you so that I can now make it make sense to an audience and explain to them. And that's where the power of story comes in, Mary. When you ask, so what is the power of story? Even just in the little snippets that I've given you, and I haven't given you the full story yet. I can already see your heads bobbing. I'm sure that there's people in the audience who understand, who have uh, experienced something similar. And it's that similarity, it's that commonality in stories. When we tell a, a story and we tell it well, if we are open and vulnerable to what it meant to us and why, that's when we find our audience. Yeah. And that's when we can have impact. We have been communicating as a species orally for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And even if you look back 200 years ago, we didn't have the literacy rate that we have now. 300 years ago, certainly. 400 years ago, definitely. Mm -hmm. So we have been communicating through story because it's the medium. You don't need to be able to read to understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And right. when you're a really good storyteller, you don't even need to speak the same language. Uh, if anybody has ever gone to an opera and they don't speak Italian, mm -hmm. you still know what's going on. There's a power in the performance where you go, oh, no, I get it. I totally get it. I don't know what those people are saying, but she's mad at that dude. <laughs> right like you just you know what's yeah. going on and story binds us together it creates unity and understanding it, it's often said right never judge a person until you've walked a mile in their shoes but i can't physically do that it's a metaphorical thing mm -hmm. if you tell me your story i can see the world through your eyes and i can have understanding i can have uh, empathy for what you have gone through or why you feel a way that you do. That's the other thing. People don't have to agree with you. In fact, it's perfectly fine to polarize with your story because there's going to be people who go, no, 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 that's not the way. I don't feel that to be true. And there are other people who are going to be like, yes, that's exactly how it is. Mm -hmm. But if you tell your story compellingly, the people who are like, I don't believe, I don't agree with that will at least understand why you feel that way. It takes away the black and the white and it allows for a little bit of gray area. It allows for a little bit of understanding. It allows for me to invite you into my viewpoint so that you can see and walk in my shoes. Mm -hmm. 
And how do people discover their audience? And I got to ask you this, what is a client avatar? Ah, so client avatar is just who, who is your, who typically are, what is your ideal uh, client? Who, what is that picture of that perfect person that you want to work with? Like, what do, what do they look like? What do they eat? Where do they socialize? Like, you need to know who that is. And the fastest way to find who your audience is or who your ideal client avatar is, uh, there's, a, there's two methods that I teach in my seminars. The first one is, who were you five or 10 years ago? Where were you at? And what advice would you go back in time and tell you? What did you need to hear? What did you need to know? What lessons did you need to learn? And if you can go back in time and talk to yourself five or 10 years ago, that person who you were five or 10 years ago is your ideal audience. Because mm -hmm. nobody knows your story better than you. Nobody knows those circumstances better than you. And nobody can teach the lessons that you've learned over the last five to 10 years better than you because you went through it. Uh-huh. And so if you speak to you five or 10 years ago, that is, that is going to be your core audience. These are the people who need to hear your message the most. And if that's something where you're like, well, you know, again, you get stuck in the, yeah, but my life isn't interesting. I didn't really learn anything. And I don't really, who wants to listen to me? If that is the thought process that's going through your head, I assure you there is an ideal audience for you, but let's flip the script a little bit. Instead of talking to yourself, who comes to you? So the second method that we teach is who typically comes to you for advice and what advice do they ask? Because we all have our areas of genius and they are usually recognized by at least a few people in our social circle, you know, and they will come to you and they'll say, well, how do you do that thing? For me, it's how do you go up on stage and not be completely terrified? Mm -hmm. But for other people, you know, like my mother-in-law, makes the greatest chocolate chip cookies. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how she My does favorite. it or why. I have tried to duplicate that recipe, right? She's like, oh, it's real simple. You just do this and you blah, blah, blah. Come over, we'll cook. And I will always come over and bake with her because then I get cookies at the end. But right, like her genius is baking. Her banana bread is delightful. Her apple pie is so scrumptious that I almost think it's, it's as Canadian as apple pie instead of American is out the pie because <laughs> she does it justice. And, you know, she, it's just her area of genius. So I'm constantly going to her asking, well, how do you cook this? How do you bake this? What do you do? And she'll go, oh, no, no, no. First of all, stop using butter. You need lard. And I'm like, what is lard? And then when I found out what lard was, I was like, are you sure that's what I want to use? And she was very insistent that that is how I'm going to have the greatest and flakiest pie crust. So uh -huh. I just listened to my mother-in-law because she's a genius. So who comes to you for advice the most often and what are they typically asking you? And when you figure out what advice you're typically giving and to who get really super specific on, on what those characteristics, what the commonalities of the people who are coming to you asking for that advice are. So for me, if I do the one avatar, it's me five to 10 years ago, we'll call him Dave, right? It's a, Fairly confident, um, middle-class, white male with leadership ambition but doesn't really know what to do and, and 
could have more impact if he could take the stage, but uh, doesn't know how to get onto the stage, doesn't know uh, what to do when and how to package his messaging. The other avatar that I have, we're going to call her Mary. And these are the people who come to me for advice. Mary is typically a female entrepreneur or charity director, usually 35 to 55 with a very large social conscience, whether it, it's part of their business or they are actually running a charity, there's a social component to it. They have a great desire to do good in their community, but don't know how to reach the people because they don't know how to package their story. They don't even think their story matters or that it's important. Mm -hmm. And so they, that is typically who comes to me and asks, how do you do that? Hmm. Because I'm usually speaking at their event because they've hired me as an MC. And afterwards they go, how'd you do that? And I say, yeah. it's really simple. And it's more impactful if you tell your story instead of I tell your story. So then I just work with them and I show them how to do it. So those are my two avatars, the people who come to ask me for advice and what advice are they asking the most? And then me five to 10 years ago and what do I need to tell myself so that I can get to where I am now? The, the me five or 10 years ago could have used the you now. <laughs> <laughs> So you never too late, Mary. Yeah. Never too late. <laughs> you you've talked about people discovering their quote why. Mm. And how do you describe how they discover it and what exactly does that mean? Well, I think uh Simon Sinek um coined the phrase, or if not, he's the one who's popularized it. And and why is really what is, the, what is your motivating factor? What is that deep driving thing that makes you do the thing? Why do you do it? What is your why? And there's, there are so many methods that have um, been developed to try and help people discover that. But I like to take a very simplistic approach to everything that I do. Because I find that if things are complicated, people don't do them. And they're hard to stick and they're hard to train and they're hard to teach. So for me... Uh, and again, I'm blessed because my daughter is five years old and I'm getting to re-explore the world through her eyes right now, which is just an incredible gift to have in my early 40s, uh, because most people, you know, don't don't have when you have children younger. I don't know if you quite have the appreciation of just how old you've gotten. <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely appreciate how old I've gotten and I'm not even all that old. Uh, but it's, it's really neat for me to go back and be like, yes, I remember being curious like that. And so when I talk to people about um, discovering their why, I talk to them about the Mackenzie principle. Mackenzie is my five-year-old daughter, and she is exploring her world. And what does Mackenzie ask me day in, day out, without stop? What is the one question that is on her mind every time? Why? Kathy, Mary, what is it? Why? 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 Yeah. why? And when does she stop asking me that? When does she stop? Never. Yeah, exactly. She yeah. never stops asking. Yeah. And that's what the McKenzie principle is. If you want to know what your motivating factor is, you have to deep dive and keep asking yourself, why? Why do I do the thing that I do? What is pushing me towards it? Because your why will change over time. There was a time when I was very egocentric, very ego-driven, and it wasn't all that long ago. It was definitely pre-McKenzie. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, my big reason for doing anything was fame. I wanted fame. Why did I want fame? The underlying thing, well, I wanted to make my father proud. 
Like if mm -hmm. I did the deep, deep, deep dive, you know, I, I'm having to be my father's legacy. He will never see where I am at. But I need to know that Clayton Foley would be proud of me. And so I have to drive. And for a very long time, it was a driving and motivating factor. I needed to do everything that I could. And to me, that translated into fame. If I could create a big enough name, if I could create enough wealth monetarily that I could donate back, I've, my big goal, and it still is my big vision, my big goal is to one day to be able to donate to my father's alma mater and have enough <laughs> financial backing behind that donation that they have to name the building after him. Oh. That is, that is, will, that is a, I don't care if it takes 100 years to get that goal, that is my goal. But now my why has shifted. So before it was legacy, my father's legacy. But now my why is the legacy that I'm leaving for my daughter. And in fact, it is my daughter. My daughter is my legacy. So as much as I will be Clayton Foley's legacy, my daughter will be Tyler Foley's legacy. Mm -hmm. And how she goes through the world and how she is viewed and how she is seen is very much in how me and my wife parent her. And I want that to be good. And I want her to have everything that she needs to be successful in life. And, and now that I have a daughter, I see abundance everywhere. And so now the monetary bit has stopped being the wealth that I'm pursuing. And the wealth that I'm pursuing is making sure that my daughter knows that she has a voice in this world, mm -hmm. that whatever she wants to do, she can do. And it's, in fact, the dedication in my book. I want her to know that her voice matters, just as everyone else on this planet's voice matters. But I never want her to feel that she's been muted or stifled, that she knows that she has the ability to speak anytime and speak well enough that if it matters to her, her audience will hear her. Good. That's great. I love that very much. I have a daughter, too. And yeah, it's very important. And, and you discover all kinds of new things when they first come into your life. Amazing. <laughs> and talk a little bit about performing for an audience and why you teach people to never visualize the audience naked, because that's such a common saying, but yeah. you don't and like your people to do oh, that. It's the worst advice ever. Like I physically <laughs> repel every time I hear it. It's actually, it started the title of the book because it's visualizing your audience naked. It, I, don't, I don't even know how that advice came to be. I want to, I want to yeah. track it down. I want to find, the, at some point, somebody somewhere went, hey, you know what would probably combat this stage fright thing? If you pictured the audience more uncomfortable than you are, yes, yes, let's do that. No, that would be good, right? Yes, we'll picture them completely and totally awkward. Yes, yes, let's take all their clothes away. Yes, yes, we'll visualize that and somehow that will make me feel less awkward and that will work. And, I, and how that became a thing, I don't know. I don't know what could be more awkward than standing in front of a room full of naked people well, naked when you're <laughs> Sounds horrible. Exactly. I well, like and, <laughs> no, I just, I don't. And, and the, the practicality of it too is, is not there because as somebody and you know this too kathy is somebody who's had to be on stage and present information that takes a lot of mental power why would i divert any of that 
into this unnecessary exercise of visualizing my audience naked. That is, that is, Negative. it's just, it's just awful. And in fact, when I was writing the book and we were trying to come up with a title for it, um, I was brainstorming and, and people were reading the manuscript and I was asking, I said, you know, I want this to be an advice book. So what is the advice that you've gotten? And we'll maybe try to uh, create a title around that, right? Like we'll, we'll find out what the advice is and then we'll counter it and make it a question. And maybe that will be the title. And one of my friends, God bless him, because I went off on this same rant uh, when he's, he's like, well, I, you know, well, I always heard you, you, you need to picture the audience naked. And I went off on a very similar diatribe to what I just gave to you, lovely ladies. And I said, I would rather empower somebody to go up and just take off all their clothes. I would rather give somebody the power to speak naked than to have them picture the audience naked. And as soon as I said it, everybody was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, no, there, there you go. That's a title. Mm. Um, and I went, I yeah. have to and ask then, you about yes. your book. Tell us about the book, The Power to Speak Naked, and tell us more about how you came to write it and how long it took to write it. So actually, the writing process was really, really fast. Writing uh -huh. it went remarkably quickly because I didn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spoke it. Good. So I've been doing this uh, the very similar training for a number of years. And being in that I have a film and television background, I record everything. I have so much video of me, it's obnoxious. And so what we did was we just took all of the training sessions that I did and grabbed the audio from the video and then transcribed the audio. And then we just packaged it together so that it was cohesive and followed in the training format that I typically would do at a seminar. That's a it's great way to write a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's not everything that you get in the seminar, but it's yeah. definitely, you know, the main snippets and tidbits, the stuff that I tended to repeat a lot uh, got into the book. And it, so it was fast, like the, literally as fast as it took to go through all of the video and go, that was good. That was good. Like that point. Oh, don't don't do that one. And then, so transcribe these videos and then the transcription came back and then it was just piecing it together. So the actual quote unquote writing process was maybe two or three months tops. Yeah. Getting the book out there, that's a different story altogether because now you have to find a publisher, you have to come up with the graphics, it has to be edited properly, do you self-publish, like all the, all the stuff that actually getting the book physically into the hands of a consumer was an additional 18 months, but I'm told that that's actually a fairly quick process. So who am Good. I to complain? Yeah. But, yeah. And, but that's, you know, that's why we wrote the book, the power to speak naked was to give people, and, and it's not that I want people to stand up on stage, right. And strip down into the emperor's clothes and <laughs> give a presentation. The point of the title, when we started to really analyze it was I want people to be able to communicate without gimmicks. You don't need the PowerPoint presentation. You don't need the PA. You don't need lighting. You don't need props. If you are a very good storyteller, I mean, most of the people who are listening to this right now are just doing that. They're listening. They're not even, they don't even have the added benefit of the visual. And if I've been successful in my mission, they've listened to now mm -hmm. because the three of us have had a compelling discussion where we have made it entertaining and we've kept them along on this journey and we didn't need anything for that but their imagination
That's and great. that's what I want to empower people to be able to do, to be able to, A, speak their raw naked truth, to be able to expose themselves and be vulnerable. I do want them to be able to do it without gimmicks, without presentation. And then on the very surface level, I legitimately want to empower people to be so confident in their message, to be so compelling with the way that they deliver it, that they could go on stage completely naked and no one would notice because it would be completely irrelevant and redundant because everybody would be captivated by the messaging and the story that they were telling that it wouldn't matter what they were wearing because nobody would see. And so I, it's, it's a multi-layered title and why I'm so passionate about it. That's I'm going to buy it. Oh, please do, Mary. <laughs> Uh, everybody wants to know the best way to buy it. And I always tell them it's in bulk. Bulk. Yeah. Bulk. Yeah. Buy it okay. in bulk. yeah. <laughs> and you give advice on networking. Can you explain yeah. why so many are networking the wrong way and how they can do it better? Oh yeah. So the, it's, it's, it comes down to mindset. A lot of people go out and they're networking and the, the whole idea behind networking is client acquisition. Networking is not client acquisition. And so the first thing we need to do is shift our mindset because so many people are, will take a bundle of business cards. You know, they'll go to Vistaprint and get 500 done and they will go to this massive networking event and then they'll come up to you. Hey, Kathy, my name is Tyler and I do this. Here's my business card. Hey, Mary, my name is Tyler. This is what I do. Here's my business card. And they just carpet bomb it. And where do the business cards end up at the end of the day? In the trash. In the trash. In the trash can. Nobody cares. Yeah, people cares will look at it do. and say, who is that? <laughs> exactly. Oh, and that's the worst too, right? You, you, nobody remembers who you are. And so the, the secret behind networking is first of all, stop going for client acquisition. That is not why you network. Can you get potential clients from networking? Absolutely. But it shouldn't be your first focus. It should, in fact, it shouldn't be your primary. It shouldn't be your secondary. It shouldn't even be your tertiary. You should just go with the one thought in mind that I am looking for strategic partners who I can help grow my business and whose business I can help grow. <laughs> and it's better if you go in with the mindset of, I'm looking for strategic partners whose business I can help grow first, who will then help me grow mine. That's mm -hmm. always a, a much more powerful position to be in. Yeah. The next thing you wanna do is stop wasting your time on that 20 to 30, 60 second slot that they often give you at a networking event right they'll go to networking events and they'll say now stand up and so many people waste time just even saying their name hi my name is tyler and i do this takes up five seconds of unnecessary time and uh, and it seems weird because you want people to know who you are but you want the people who need to know who you are to know who you are so what i teach everybody to do is jump into your story right now and in fact don't jump into your story because you're not the hero of your story. If you do the hero's journey model, your audience, your ideal client is the hero. You are the sage and the mentor. In Star Wars terms, you are Obi-Wan Kenobi. You are not Luke Skywalker. Yeah. And so when I go to a networking event, usually my 30 seconds goes like this. Who here hates coming to these things because they find them awkward and socially weird? Who struggles coming up with how to even talk when you get your 30 seconds? Who would much rather have a one-on-one -on -one conversation than have to stand up on stage and talk to these people? If you identified with any of that, 
let me tell you, I have a very quick system that will make even the most introverted person the most captivating person in the room. And if you would like to know more about that, I'll be in the back right there. Come and chat with me. My name is Tyler, and I will talk to you about what I do. That's great advice. Just right. You hit their pain point, and then they come talk to you. And then now they know at the end, because now they're going to remember your name because it was the last thing you said instead of the first thing that you said. They'll come to you and they'll be like, okay, Tyler, tell me more about this because I'm an introvert and I really hate these things. I'll be like, great, let's have a conversation. I would love if we had more time with you, but we have to wrap up. We would love to thank our guest today on Late Boomers, Tyler Foley, actor, speaker, instructor, and managing director of Total Buy-In, author of the book, The Power to Speak Naked, and very wise man. Thank you so much, Tyler. Oh, thank you, Mary, and thank you, Kathy. You can reach Tyler on his website, seantylerfoley.com, and that's spelled S-E-A-N, tylerfoley.com. And to our listeners, please give us some feedback on our website, lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z, by shooting us an email. We'd love to hear from you. We want to serve, entertain, and inspire you. Thank you so much, Tyler, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, 
go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.